don't think you have anything to worry about. I mean, we never really know what goes on in people's minds or what they do, right? You spend every second with somebody. There's still this part that's a mystery. You know? You don't have to know everything to love someone. A mystery. It's kind of sexy. I'm a mystery to myself, honestly. I surprise myself all the time. I think you just... You just... Do whatever you have to do. Not to feel like a victim of life. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decoding TV, a podcast about television. I am David Chen. I'm Roxanne Haddadi. Welcome to the podcast. On today's episode, we are going to be discussing The White Lotus Season 2, Episode 7, entitled Arrivederci. White Lotus Season 2, Episode 7, the Season 2 finale. You can find more episodes of this podcast at podcast.decodingtv.com. Email us at decodingtv at gmail.com, which many of you did this last season, and we are so grateful for those emails. And find us on Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, at Decoding TV. Now, before we get into today's episode, Roxana, there's a bunch of announcements, stuff I have to share, etc. So stick with me, folks. Uh, first of all, uh, I, I know like during the course of the season, it's obvious from the emails at decodingtv.gmail.com, like a lot of people have been enjoying this podcast, engaging with with both the White Lotus and this podcast, and we're we're really grateful for that. There is going to be one additional bonus episode of this podcast. And at this point, I think it's going to be a bonus episode available for uh, paid subscribers at DecodingTV.com. Now, you might be asking, what's DecodingTV.com? Decoding TV makes money in two ways. Uh, One is through advertising, but most of the money that the the podcast network makes comes from paid subscribers at DecodingTV.com. And we are incredibly grateful for people who pay for a subscription at decodingtv.com. Every person I work with, Roxana, everyone else, um, I pay uh, out of the money that we make at decodingtv.com. And uh, so if you want to support podcasts like this one and keep it going long into the future, uh, decodingtv.com, become a paid member, get access to ad-free episodes, uh, exclusive bonus episodes, uh, as well as early access to episodes. Again, by becoming a paid member at decodingtv.com. Thank you so much for those who do that. And I do want to say, uh, Roxana, this completes, uh, you know, other than the bonus episode, this basically completes our first uh, run together at Decoding TV. Uh, this is our first uh, kind of ongoing podcast that we've ever done together. And I do just want to say a big thank you to Roxana uh, for taking a chance on Decoding TV. Uh, this has been so much fun. It's been so fascinating to hear from you. And also... Uh, it's just been really fun to disagree with you on virtually every single thing about the show. Agreed. So thank you, Roxana. <laughs> I, I want to give thank a big you. thank you to Roxana. And um, if you're in the audience, you can, you know, be thanking it, it, just as you were screaming at your phone uh, a couple weeks ago when I missed the detail, quote unquote detail from the show. Uh, now you can be saying thank you at your phone. Um, and be sure to also tweet at Roxana and say thank you for her participation as well. But uh, uh, the one, one other way you can share your thanks is by becoming a paid member at DecodingTV.com. But Roxana, thank you. It's been such a blast. And we hope to bring you back again very soon. So Thank you. I'm very much the same. 
Okay. Uh, one other thing I wanted to say about uh, announcing things, which is that uh, people are probably curious, like, what shows are we going to be covering in the future? What show is the Decoding TV podcast going to be covering in the future? And I want to preemptively announce the next show that we'll be covering right now. Usually I wait until the show actually comes out. Uh, but we are actually about a month away from the next show that we're going to cover. Uh, I am pleased to announce that the next show that Decoding TV will be covering is The Last of Us, uh, which is going to be premiering on HBO in mid-January. Keep subscribed to Decoding TV to get our announcement episode later this week or in the next week or two. It'll be coming out and you will also find out who my co-host is for that uh, podcast. But Decoding TV will be covering The Last of Us. It's going to be really exciting. I, I the, the pedigree behind that show is excellent. So I'm really looking forward to both watching that show on TV, uh, The Last of Us, and also podcasting about it here on Decoding TV. Finally, last week on the podcast, we put out a call for all of your theories uh, as, as to what was going to happen uh, this week on uh, The White Lotus. And lots of people sent in theories. And we really appreciate those. Those were super fun to read. Uh, There were two big things that people mentioned last week, like in the last week over emails that I just wanted. Many people wrote this in. So I just wanted to get this off my chest right off the top uh, of the show, Uh, which is number one. Many people speculated that the reason why Quentin and as we know now, Greg, were trying to hook Tanya up with Niccolo uh, was to get her to cheat on Greg and that there might be some kind of clause in the prenup that would dissolve the marriage if she cheated on Greg or, you know, allow Greg to unlock some money if she cheated on him. Uh, that felt more plausible to me than a murder uh, scheme, mm-hmm. but uh, ultimately we found out the murder scheme was accurate uh, on this episode of the show. So, uh, but lots of people guessed that. I thought it was a pretty good theory myself. I was like, oh, mm. Wish we had mentioned that on the podcast, but uh, it I turned think, out not to be true. I think the only thing that sort of gave me a little bit of hesitance about that is like, we also know that Greg was cheating. So part of me thinks, wouldn't Tanya have the resources to like combat that by also figuring out that Greg had cheated? Do we know that Greg was cheating is the question, Roxana? I mean, I think the phone calls pretty heavily a lot of people think the phone call is with quentin doesn't he say he say greg say i love you in the phone call oh i don't remember that i remember him saying i I remember him saying like she doesn't forward she doesn't suspect anything that's kind of what i yeah i remember him saying something like she's clueless per usual and i also thought that he said something about like being excited to see you soon but i also thought he said love you on the phone call, which again, well, again, he could have been that, having an affair with Quentin. Is, is with Quentin. I don't know. Or, or, or if not, maybe it's a brotherly, brotherly love that he has with Quentin. Right. You know? And I, yeah. So there are a lot of possibilities here. It's just, I sort of thought that like the smoking gun of getting Tanya on videotape, like if Tanya yeah. is still alive, I could see her fighting that. And the way, it, well, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's definitive at all that Greg was cheating per se, right? Um, but I also think that like the way last episode was shot, uh, and how how kind of like there's a dolly shot that kind of pulls out slowly at the end, really does make it feel like oh, is she being watched in some way? There's something consequential to this event, in a way that we kind of find out in this episode wasn't really the case. So right. Uh, so anyway, that was a great theory, but it, it mm-hmm. ended up not being true. 
last episode, I wondered if we had actually seen Cam's penis on the show. Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't remember seeing Cam's penis. I remember there being maybe some side dick, but not like a full-on frontal Cam's penis shot. And mm-hmm. a lot of people wrote in to say we did see Cam's penis, mm-hmm. uh, but it was prosthetic. It wasn't actually that actor's penis. Right. Um, it was not Theo James. Like it was, a, but it wasn't. In it, it, like it was a, it was not his dick. You know, it was a prosthetic dick. Uh, and it, I have a horrible confession to make, which is that in addition to struggling with Mendelian genetics, I also have dick blindness. Apparently, yeah. I can't. I don't remember when I've seen dicks. And and also, by the way, as uh, made clear on our bonus episode last night, uh, butts. I got Albie's butt confused with Ethan's butt. My wife said she actually made the same mistake because uh, their hair is kind of the same. It's kind of curly. Hmm. Um, okay. But ultimately, at the end of the day, Ethan's butt is not the same as Albie's butt. And I regret the error. So um, I, I want to. It's very interesting that. to me that, like, in a season full of male nudity, it has all, like, not made an impact on you. <laughs> mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Uh, hey, no, uh, there's a full, there's a big Nicholas full frontal, and that was, uh, I, I acknowledge yeah. that. So, yeah. Yeah. How could we not? Uh, I, I would say artful male nudity uh, hasn't made it a bit. You know, it's, it's too subtle for me, Roxana. Uh, okay. So, uh, we got a bunch of emails writing in uh, theories, and I wanted to share, like, uh, some of the theories and mm-hmm. some of the things that people had like figured out mm-hmm. before we get into the events of this episode. Okay, so yeah. these were all at decodingtvhemail.com. And, and I do want to say, by the way, our mailbag episode, like our bonus episode next week, will be like mailbag. We'll also talk about like other writing and interviews that have happened around the show in the last week. Um, so decodingtvhemail.com or just comment at decodingtv.com. We'd love to discuss your feedback and thoughts. Francesca from Phoenix writes uh, this, uh, and she kind of broke down what she thought would happen this episode. So these were all, all these were written before the episode aired. Why am I sharing these? Because I actually think they're fun and interesting. Um, Francesca from Phoenix writes, uh, with regards to the Luca and De- I'm sorry, Lucia and DeGrasso storyline, I 100% agree with you, Albies and Mark. I think watching the first scene with Lucia in the first episode solidifies it. When she meets up with Mia on the road, they pass by Alessio. Lucia yells out in Italian, hey, Alessio, see you later, in a very friendly and casual manner. Not at all how you'd greet your pimp. So it seems he is a friend or ex or brother, but they definitely have to be working together to scam Albie and the rest of the DeGrasso family to get their money. Uh, I'll pause here and say I think that ends up being accurate, and I think we see Alessio at the end again um, in very friendly terms. Okay, Mm -hmm. Francesca continues. Daphne and the supposed trainer's baby. The theory about the baby being the trainer's and not Cam's has been circulating. And while I think it's a great theory, and it may be possible, I think that takes away from what Daphne is trying to convey to Harper during that conversation. Whether or not it's the trainer's baby, I think she is telling Harper to do whatever it takes to stay in her relationship, either by cheating on Ethan, having a baby, doing whatever Harper needs to do. Love the ambiguity of, of Daphne's point, and it adds so much complexity to her character, which makes her all the more compelling. To me, it doesn't matter whether the baby is the trainer's or Cam's. She's being self-sufficient and is not victimizing herself, which speaks so much. I think the theory is only reducing her character and stripping the layers away from her complexity. I feel that Mike White has left it ambiguous on purpose and it adds so much more if it was kept this way, end quote. Uh, People may disagree on that, but I thought it's a great point that like, I do think theory, like fan theories like this have the potential to be reductive or flattening. You know, they can be like, oh, it's just this twist as opposed to like, think about what the emotional 
like complexity that's being conveyed is there. In this case, there is a lot of emotional complexity with the baby not being Cam's, but I, I, I take the point in general and I uh, agree with it. And I think that it is in fact ambiguous. It's not. It's probably the case that it's not her. Uh, it's not Cam's kids. And we see like we talked last night on the bonus podcast about like Cam potentially realizing and recognizing these are not her kids. Um, but I think it's ambiguous. Uh, any further thoughts on that, Roxana? Well, just that I think like Daphne doing what she wants is also so clear in this episode if we're meant to yeah. think that she and Ethan sleep together. So it's it's very interesting to have this character who puts herself first and then you see the contrast with Harper at the end of the day, right? Like I think if we're to believe that Harper was like purposefully being confusing with Ethan about what happened with Cam, then it's sort of like Daphne is like a master level at this kind of thing. And Harper just doesn't seem to have it like in her to be that person. So Mm -hmm. it does make Daphne more complex and fascinating and sort of proves that like Harper can't get there. So I like that contrast. It doesn't really matter who the father of the kid is. Yeah. Uh, It doesn't really change how Daphne approaches her life. Great, great point. Um, Great points all around. I think we'll return to that Harper point later. Uh, but yeah, I think it works either way. I think it's purposely left ambiguous in mm-hmm. my, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. There are also some people debating whether or not Daphne is actually blonde this week. And I, I do think she is blonde, but you know, uh, I will let other people who are smarter than that weigh in on that. Um, smarter about that way in that. Okay. A couple of other emails at decoding TV at gmail.com. I think Tanya, uh, Pat, Pat B writes quote, I think Tanya paid for the experience as some kind of fantasy. Like all the mystery and murder is a ruse. She paid for at Portia's psychological expense. Uh, the money Quentin is coming into is the large sum Tanya paid for the experience. My big prediction, though, is that Albie has a girlfriend in the U.S. When Lucia finds out, she gets so mad and Albie somehow falls off a cliff in some way decapitating him. Also, Dom is there and falls in after him. Bert has died while swimming from a concussion and is the body that Daphne finds. Uh, end quote. That extremely elaborate email, none of which came true. As okay, far as but I can tell. Pat B. should have a soap opera writing job because yes. those are amazing theories. Amazing theories. Amazing yeah. theories. Love that whole and thing. And I will say that Pat B. is not necessarily wrong about, like, the immersive quality of what happens to Tanya. Like, mm-hmm. Tanya chasing experiences is part of her character. So I, th- totally. I think there's some, yeah, there's some solid Oh yeah, I mean all there. these all these struck me as pretty plausible. Yeah. Um Rosa writes into decodingtv@gmail.com. I agree that Albie is Lucia's mark. My prediction is Dom in an, in his attempt to do something noble somehow kills Alessio even ac- if accidentally in his attempt to unnecessarily defend Lucia and his son. Bert learns the truth from Lucia or maybe from Mia and pays her off. Neither Dom nor Albie ever learn the truth of what each other's father did. Continuing the family's pattern of keeping secrets from each other around sex workers, but maybe Dom tells Laura Dern about it. The other death probably comes from the Villa Gays, but I'm not sure how or why. As you said, it takes place back in the White Lotus. End quote. Um, I like this idea of like the deaths being caused by the DeGrassos in some way as kind of an overreaction to you know trying to be chivalrous. Uh, that that struck me as a pretty cool idea. That obviously none of that happened, but um, 
But anyway, also, I still like that idea. Yeah. But I like that idea too because it uh, suggests that maybe the DeGrassos would somehow be affected by anything that happened in this failed motherland trip. And they just weren't. <laughs> like, right? Like they got like yelled at by the relatives. They traveled across the world to see and like neither of them, none of them seems to care. Like Bert well, makes a joke out of it, right? Well, yeah. I, you know, there, I think we did get an email or a tweet or some, a comment, I don't remember, but, like, somebody sharing, like, how powerful the Burt scene was last week. Like, Yeah, uh, which I think it was. The idea that it's kind, like, that Burt is, like, truly alone. He has been commenting all season on, like, how there's no place in modern society for an old person like him, and um, and now, like in his outmoded way of thinking, he thinks he will be welcomed in by his female uh, relatives when he comes home and he's instead rejected. And it's like, he's already lost his wife. He already like alienates a lot of women in his life. Like these were kind of the last people that he thought would, you know, uh, what was it? The phrase he used was like the, the, the warm embrace of a woman or some, something along yeah, those like lines. Homecoming or, is a warm the, yeah. embrace. Yeah. yeah. And, and, uh, and that he lost that was like a, a huge kind of loss and, and makes him one of the most tragic uh, characters in the season. Uh, so yes, n- none of them died, but they still lost $50,000 and. Which is nothing to them. <laughs> <laughs> and Albie got mildly rejected. We'll talk about that later. Anyway. Yeah. Um, but I like the idea of like, oh, that re- basically I'm reading you emails, listeners that like really got my imaginary like my imagination my creativity flowing you know what i'm saying there's another Um, email as well that pointed out like from and i appreciated this as someone whose parents like go back to their home country and bring gifts how are you going to go visit these relatives and you're not bringing them any gifts okay yeah that's pretty bad yeah that's that's terrible that's yeah i mean now we understand why they kicked him out yeah Um, like what the hell yeah finally uh wall o did I write that correctly? Wall O writes, the Godfather is mentioned throughout White Lotus season two. Uh, throughout the Godfather movies, oranges appear. Whenever someone is about to be shot or die, uh, Vito is playing with an orange peel and his grandson in the tomato garden. Tessio is seen holding an orange at the opening wedding scene. Don Fanucci buys an orange during the festival before he's murdered in Godfather 2. Mike White would be well aware of this device used in the Godfather films and in the White Lotus has substituted pineapples for oranges. We and see- in, the first, in the first movie... Uh... Vito is buying oranges at the fruit stand when they attempt to assassinate him. And it's the bag mm. of oranges that falls out of his hand yes. when Fredo like runs to his side. So yeah. 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 Great, great example. Yeah. Um, that probably the stro- probably the most memorable one. Um, Mike White would be well aware of this device using the Godfather films. And in the white Lotus, he has substitute pineapples, substituted pineapples for oranges. We see three people in episode six, consuming pineapples first at the breakfast of the Palazzo. Quinton walks into the room and asks who wants pineapple mimosas. Portia responds with yes, and Tanya says, "Oh sure." Portia seems to be eating some kind of fruit slices for breakfast, which may or may not be Mike, may, not, may or may not be pineapple. There's also orange slices at the table too, which I think is Mike White's way of connecting the two fruits. Separately at the beach, after Cam, Harper, and Ethan come back from the rooms, Harper is drinking a pina colada with a pineapple slice. She offers it to Ethan, who refuses it. After their argument, there's a lingering shot of her rank, rather angrily eating the pineapple slice. Both moments seem a little out of pace and uh, a lot of out of place and slightly out of pace as if they're put in for dramatic effect. I see this as a clue from Mike White. Mike White sorry, I'm having trouble reading this morning. Um, that Tanya and Portia are going to be murdered. Uh, other, other guests who were killed uh, and 
Harper is the killed that morning and is the body that uh, that Daphne finds in the ocean, end quote. Um, so Tanya was definitely one of the people that was killed. Uh, Portia and Harper were not. Um, but I, I there was a lot of theorizing that Daphne would be the one doing the murdering, and that would make the opening scene even more chilling of her being like, hey, guys, I'm just having fun. Like, let's go in the water. Oh, my gosh, body that I created. Uh, I like that. Uh, but that didn't end up happening. Uh, but yeah, anyway, I, I thought I, I just think it's fun, fun when people kind of read these things into it, even though this ended up not really being uh, true, end quote. So, yeah, um, uh, not end quote. I don't know why I said that stuff. <laughs> I'm really loopy this morning, Roxana. Anyway, uh, any other thoughts on people's I sent you all the theories that people sent in. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts before we dive into the actual episode? I don't think so. I think we covered a good amount of them. We'll probably talk about others in our bonus episode. But I think. People did. I I still am very impressed by the people who guessed at Greg's connection. Yeah, because I yeah. really thought it would just be like Greg's cheating, and then he like exits stage left. But uh, that did not turn out to be the case. There were also uh, there was also an online meme or people pointing out that Tanya's dress is extremely similar to the dress worn by the woman in the car that gets blown up in The Godfather. So it's um, not actually what she wears in the movie, but it's what they put on the dummy at the tourist exhibit. Oh, yes. In the movie, she's wearing like a blue dress. But yes, gotcha, it's similar yes. to the Apollonia dummy and how she's dressed when Portia goes to yes. the attraction. Yes. yes. So another clue, another clue for you. Okay. Yeah. Let's dive into it. Season two, episode seven, Arrivederci. Uh, we discussed our overall thoughts last night on uh, a bonus episode. And I overall really liked the episode. I thought it was well put together. I think upon further reflection, you know, there were some issues with the, you know, I think back to to all the characters this season and probably about a quarter to a third of them. I thought the show didn't really give us quite enough to work with. Um, But that still means that two thirds of the characters were pretty well done, in my opinion, pretty well drawn. Uh, and, uh, I, I, I end up thinking like the show is a big success. Like it, it ended up being really compelling watching for me. I wanted to find out what happened to all these people and lot, millions of people on the internet around the country also did as well. So like, I still think the second season was a success, um, albeit not quite as clean as the first season. Um, Roxana, now that you've had, you know, 12 hours to marinate on it since we recorded our bonus episode, I'm curious, uh. If you have any thoughts on uh, any overall thoughts before we dive into the plots. I mean, I think I'm still mixed. I think I probably still am where you are. I think you might be more glass half full and I'm slightly more glass half empty. I just think looking back on it, this season felt more driven by the themes that Mike White wanted to touch on more than the characters that he was crafting. Mm. Um, And we'll talk about this when we get to the section. But sometimes, especially with like the Ethan Harper, Cam, Daphne scenario, I felt like Cam and Ethan never had the depth I wanted them to have. It felt like Harper and Daphne felt more sketched out. But overall, it felt like they were in service of this like infidelity. What does it do to you story? You know what I mean? Like sometimes I just think there were bigger questions here and Mike White was a little bit more interested in tossing out big questions than in letting like specific individuals drive the story forward. 
Um, so that's sort of like where the uh, mixed reaction comes from for me. Yeah, I, I think I think those are great great points. I think though that uh, the season two finale was just really well done from a thriller perspective because you're kind of guessing who are the people that are going to die the whole episode. It's kind of like almost to the point where it's like winking at the camera as to like, Hey, is this person going to die? Is maybe this person, maybe cam's going to drown underneath the water. Like, or maybe it's going to be Ethan that, you know, like who knows? Uh, And for me, I was really guessing all the way to the end and that's fun. Now, I don't know how that's going to feel on subsequent viewings. um, But overall, I had a lot of fun with the season finale. Uh, But on further reflection, I'm like, you know what? The Lucia and Mia stuff really didn't work that well. And also the Valentina plotline, I would argue, is almost a disaster. Like, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Mm-hmm. But let's start with uh, a relatively simple resolution for these plots uh, or for their, their characters. And that's the DeGrasso men. So the final morning of the vacation, Albi vows to help Lucia. Lucia. Uh, and she says, I- I'm, I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you the money that you need. He then approaches Dom about transferring 50,000 euros uh, to his bank account. Wild. Um, and there is an ar- they have an argument and uh, about it because Dom obviously doesn't want to part with $50,000. And uh, Albie says, hey, uh, I-, I want you to do this for me. Consider a karmic payment for being a huge asshole. And BT dubs, I'll help you out with mom. A.K.A. Laura Dern's voice, A.K.A. someone else's photo that is not Laura Dern. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, it, curious why he is, uh, why Mike White uses this person that's Laura Dern's voice but not Laura Dern's face. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. I saw Alan Seppenwall speculate maybe because that character might come back in a future season. We'll see. Um, but uh, and and they know they probably won't be able to get Laura Dern for that part. But anyway, we'll see. Uh, so I thought this conversation was awesome because it's it's them acknowledging so many truths about themselves. Like th- those are my favorite conversations this season is when the characters acknowledge fundamental truths. Like we are no longer attracted to each other. Uh, I'm going to ask you for fifty thousand dollars. You're a mark, Albi. I'm okay with being a mark. You know, like all those things. Like all that stuff comes out, and it's all very interesting in my opinion. Roxana, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think these conversations, this conversation in particular, I think you saw sort of the growth that each character has gone through during this trip. Like, Albie felt very mature in this conversation in a way that I don't think he did uh, in previous discussions with Dom or with Bert. It felt like he had a clear end goal. He knew what would cause his father to sort of crack under pressure, right? Like, he knew what to bargain. Uh, and that felt intelligent and well thought out for Albie. Um, and then on the other hand, <laughs> and then on the other hand, I'm like, I guess 50,000 really is nothing because there really isn't like a serious negotiation about the money. There's more negotiation. I think about Dom, you know, thinking like, <laughs> he's like how 10, is my son? Ten, like, ten, how ten. is my son going to go through life if he's this gullible? Yes. Which yes. I, which I think is a valid concern. Completely. Yeah. Completely. He yeah. does try to say like, how about 10 grand? I could easily part with 10 grand, but yeah, fifth, I agree with you that the, the money is really not an issue because Albie points out correctly that 50 grand is, is, is nothing to him. So it's, yeah. it doesn't really and make a huge difference. The other thing, and this, I don't know, this might be me just having wanted like, 
more soapy type stuff. Is there part of me that wishes that like Lucia had blackmailed Dom and told him like if he didn't pay up, she would tell Albie about their relationship. There's part of me that sort of wishes that like Lucia had slightly more interactions with Dom because I thought that was an interesting. I mean, we argued about it. We got tons of emails about it, right? Like about the nature of that triangular relationship. So I sort of wish we had gone back to that. Well, what's fascinating, point. what's fascinating is we never, yeah, th- that sort of plot is never resolved, which is that Dom never tells Albi that he slept mm-hmm. with Lucia. So, mm-hmm. uh, which is an interesting, interesting move for the show. They're just like, we're just not going to come back to that. And that's fine. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> Dom calls out Albi on spending money he hasn't earned. And Dom calls Albi a mark, which he's offended by. But of course, Albi is a mark. And, and I think Albi, on some level, from my perspective, knows that he might be a mark. And he, I think he even says it. He's like, he, he, you know, Dom says, are you just going to go like trying to like save, save every single every girl woman. you meet? And he's like, maybe I will. Maybe I will, Dad. And uh... see, I didn't think of that as self-awareness. I thought of that just as like a child being petulant. Yeah, no, no, no. But I think I'll be like when he when he is revealed to be a mark to himself, like it, it becomes clear that he's a mark. He's not like he doesn't break anything. He doesn't kill anyone like he he's just like, oh, OK, well, that sucked. I'm you know, but I think he knew that it was a possibility the whole time. It's my that's my read on it. Um, Bert arrives at breakfast still with a head wound and says, I had a dream. We went to visit our relatives. They turned out to be a bunch of banshees that chased us out of town. End quote. Uh, do you think, I don't think he's being literal. I think he's, I thought he was joking in this scene. What do you think? I can't tell. Yeah. I, okay. you know, I can't tell. I mean, I think he very well could, but on the other hand, and we also got emails about this, Bert has just like had a head wound <laughs> this whole time. <laughs> it's such a weird, like. Bert I, was is it, concussed. Did F. Murray Abraham have a, like, get, get surgery or something or get a mole removed? And that's why they needed to put a bandage on his head? Though? I don't know. Like, why? What was the purpose of the head wound? Anyway, may, maybe know. he does need medical attention. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, when we hear that Bert is dead next season because oh, of a head Bert. wound. Oh. Later that evening, Mia hugs Bert, tells him she got the singing job. Uh, and then he reveals to Dom and Albie that he got a little bit aroused when she hugged him. Um, of course he did. Like, Thanks for sharing that, Bert. Really, yeah. really needed to hear about that. Uh, but Dom confers to Al- confirms to Albie uh, that he sent the karmic payment, and Albie says, "I already talked to Mom. Everything's going to be fine." Really feels like that whole thing was fixed a little bit too easily, in my opinion, because of yeah. Laura Dern's is just a really effective screamer uh, in the first episode with Dom, and I'm like, really, with one. One conversation with Albie have gotten you know her on his good side or vice versa, gotten him on her good side. But whatever, I accept it. Um, Albie bails on dinner, goes to meet Lucia and tell her to check her bank account, uh, and she spends the night with him. Uh, and then, yeah, there's a call between Dom and his wife, and she doesn't completely tell him to get off the phone immediately, which is huge win for him. Uh, she's like, right, she tells him to call back when he's in the states. Yeah, which call is back like when you're an in the open states. door. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, so then the next day, Lucia gets up from bed with Albi and leaves. Albi wakes up, sees her gone, realizes that he's been played. At the airport, all three generations of men turn around to look at an attractive woman walking by. The DeGrasso's generational trauma passed down from one generation to the next. Is it uh, trauma? I mean, well, is it? 
it, it's trauma and it's also uh misogyny you know i mean so, i hesitate to call it trauma yes partially it's misogyny i just think it's like learned masculinity sure right? okay yeah uh all of the above could be true uh but anyway portia sees albie walks up to him um basically learns from albie that tanya is dead uh and that's when they're like hey do you want to like exchange numbers and it's kind of funny that's a very funny moment. It, it's it's like a very like romantic comedy esque moment. Yeah, like um, I didn't expect Portia to like weep for Tanya necessarily, but the speed with which she's like, "Hey, give me your number," but she knows now, right? She had the bad guy. She had the Jack experience, and he almost like killed her. He did abduct her. So now <laughs> Albie looks pretty good in comparison. <laughs> I, I have I have a couple of. A few, three thoughts on this. Three thoughts okay. on this whole situation. Thought number okay. one: um, the, the first two thoughts are things that my wife shared with me about this whole plot line and our conversation mm-hmm. about it, Roxana. Mm-hmm. Um, thought number one is: uh, boy, I hope Portia likes being on planes because when she gets home, she's going to be flying right back uh, because people are going to have a lot of questions about why a billionaire heiress uh, or a hundred millionaire heiress. Um, is dead and Tanya. I'm sorry, Portia was one of the last people to see her alive. So and isn't Por- well. I mean, maybe they like got rid of her luggage, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of like what I'm trying to figure out is how big is the conspiracy because Jack certainly makes it seem like there's just like a serious group of like scammers running around and that they could essentially make. Portia disappear. So that's what I can't figure out. Like, uh, here's what here's what I can't figure out. Why didn't they make Portia disappear? Like, like why, why didn't would they you just leave, kill her? Why would you leave a living witness? Like, it doesn't make any none of that makes any sense to me. But um, I think Jack was supposed to kill her and just didn't. Mm, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's possible. Yeah. That's possible. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Because of um, what Quentin says, did she, did Hades carry her off into the underworld? Mm, mm. I think that Jack was supposed to kill her and then I see. I changes see. Well, his go. mind. The second thing that my wife wanted to, to share, she wanted me to try to impart this perspective, is mm-hmm. that we should not view Jack versus Albie as a binary choice for Portia. Like, or, oh, I agree. or she, she shouldn't view it that way, right? Like, yeah. hey, you don't want to be with the murderous pool boy. That's cool. But that doesn't also mean you need to be with the stuck-up Stanford grad, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, but but also my wife doesn't really have anything against Albie. It's just like they're clearly not really attracted to each other or right for each other. No. Um, all that said, we did get this email hot off the presses this morning, Roxana. Oh, I wow. Didn't tell you, okay. I didn't tell you I'm going to be reading this email on the air. Okay. At decodingtv at gmail.com. Oh, I'm so worried now. Okay. Subject line, justice for Albie. Dear dear David, dear David, all season long, we've been told by certain reviewers that Albie is a fake nice guy. That he's a a simmering pit of toxicity just under the surface and that all Mm -hmm. his mannerisms are a performative act. A facade Mm -hmm. that will fall away at the soonest perceived slight of inconvenience. I didn't say that, but okay. Now that the season is over... I think Albie's owed an apology. He was no. rejected by Portia. He shrugged it off. He was scammed by Lucia for 50,000 euros, and he shrugged that off too. Plenty of Al- uh, opportunities for Albie to go crazy, angry, incel guy on us, but he didn't. Dude kept his chill the whole time. So maybe 
he really is a nice guy and all his woke feminist stuff wasn't just posturing and he's really trying to live his life in a less toxic masculine way than his father or grandfather with the season done and this probably being the last we see of him i feel we all need to look back on how albie was perceived judged and demeaned over the last few weeks i think he might be owed an apology Thanks so much to you and Roxana for your reviews. It's been a pleasure to watch the show and listen to the two of you dissect and discuss each week afterwards. Mm-hmm. That's from Azim. Okay. Uh, so if you're listening to the audio version of this, uh, Roxana was unmoved by Azim's pleas. Yeah. I'm uh, sorry to Azim, but I'm I, not I, I can see apologize. over video. <laughs> I, I, I guess I have to say I agree with Azim. Like I, you, you've been, you've been certainly less on the all be hate train these last few weeks. And I appreciate mm-hmm. that. But like, I, I am genuinely curious now. Yeah, I think it's completely fine to not like Albie or he rubs you the wrong way or he's annoying. Mm-hmm. Like those are all fine to me. But to assert that he is somehow like toxic masculine, like I, I, I also will say that I think it's very understandable for uh, to be annoyed by people, by guys who think they're part of the solution, but they are not really part of the solution. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's where you fall down on it, you know, is my is my guess. And that's completely understandable. Mm-hmm. But I largely think, I personally largely think that Albie has been at worst inoffensive this season. Um, but Roxana, I'm going to give you, you know, that, that, that's a very impassioned plea that I thought was very reasonable. I will give you the last word on Albie. I mean, I don't necessarily want to have the last word on Albie. <laughs> I think just what I'll say, and, and this yeah. is sort of my, this is a little bit of my frustration with this storyline. Yeah is I think in the initial episodes, he is set up as someone that we are supposed to judge. I think, Mm -hmm. I I genuinely think that. I think Mm -hmm. in his interactions with Portia, we are meant to see that he is like taking these lessons about the kind of man that he does not want to be and he is wielding them in a specific way and they're not necessarily artful or graceful and I think they are awkward and cringy to watch. And I don't think I ever said that he was like an incel. (laughs) But (laughs) I do think that he and Portia are both characters who are clearly defined by like not actually knowing what they want and not knowing like what kind of person they want to be. And a little bit of my frustration with this is that Albie gets an arc where he gets to have sex with Lucia. He gets to quote unquote save her. Yes, he turns out to be a Mark, but like, you said he doesn't really care. Like there isn't really a, I don't want to say a comeuppance for Albie because I don't necessarily know if he deserves a comeuppance, but it doesn't feel like Albie gets an experience where he like learns that maybe his behavior was not the best. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me that we also don't get that for like Cam. The season sort of gives men a pass when it had seemed like the entire season was actually going to be about like punishing men, the Moore's head, like challenging men to think differently about women. And I think that line about how like our Achilles heel is actually an Achilles cock sometimes just felt to me like a shrugging, like boys will be boys sort of acceptance. And I think that's where like the Albi character and some of the other stuff has fallen down for me. This sense that like, well, Men are just going to behave like men behave, and there's nothing we can do about it. So I don't want to apologize to Albie. I, like, refuse to do that, actually. (laughs) Um, But I, yes, I will say certainly that Jack 
becomes such a horrifying figure that Albie looks fine in comparison. (laughs) All right. Well, that was beautifully articulated, Roxana. And I think uh, what is very, very clear from our conversations is reasonable people can disagree about Albie. And, um, and yeah, I think, I think it is very, it's a very reasonable reaction to be annoyed by Albie and you don't like Albie. You know, I think Mm -hmm. I, I I think he is relatively innocuous, certainly one of the most innocuous people on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, but re- reasonable people can disagree. Um, well, and I also think it's interesting because I think in the initial episodes, again, I don't think I said Albie was going to become like an incel shooter. But I think <laughs> Albie gets some of those early indications of like, he maybe is not the best at dealing with things that happen against his will right like it sort of seemed like he could also have a little bit of a short temper but then those qualities get transferred to ethan really hardcore and it felt like then ethan has this turn Mm. where he becomes sort of like badgering harassing abusive sort of like unable to see past his own perspective um and so i don't know again it's like i'm not exactly sure I sort of dislike the the gender essentialism, which we've brought up over and over again. But I feel like that Achilles cock line is sort of like a little bit the, of the a thesis flimsy, of the show. Yeah, just like men are going to be like that. And so I just I don't necessarily love that. But indeed, Azim, I'm really glad that you enjoyed Albie's arc. I'm sorry that I can't. <laughs> I can't apologize on his behalf. I apologize that I can't apologize. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that's yeah. the Grasso storyline. Uh, yeah. And uh, those are our thoughts on it for this season. You know, Roxana, uh, mm-hmm. I I have to say that uh, when we have a, a heated argument on the, on the podcast, it can be a, a little bit electrifying. Yes. And I bring that up because this episode of Decoding TV is brought to you by Nissan. As a pioneer in the electric vehicle space, Nissan is always looking for ways to deliver new, meaningful technologies to EV owners. After all, Nissan has been making EVs since 1947. That is not a typo. And their EVs have now traveled 8 billion miles uh, by Nissan Leaf owners since 2010. 8 billion miles, which is the equivalent of driving to Pluto and back. You think that's electrifying? One of their EVs trekked all the way to the North Pole, and Nissan even tests their EV technology on the Formula E racetrack. But Nissan knows you don't just get an EV for the E. You get an, a Nissan EV because it, makes it, because it makes you feel electric. Because it sparks your imagination and ignites something within you. It pins you to your seat and takes your breath away. At least that's what Nissan thinks about designing their EVs like the Nissan Aria and the Nissan Leaf. It's about creating a thrilling design that electrifies its customers. I love Nissan's focus on creating a thrilling drive and an electrifying life. In today's world, it's so important to look around you, to pay attention, to look for all the tiny ways that life can electrify you. And as I was just talking about, one of the ways in which I get a charge is by doing this podcast with Roxana, debating all of people's opinions on things like Albi, who is going to get murdered in the White Lotus, and so on and so forth. It's such a blast. And that's why I think it's so appropriate that Nissan, who is responsible for so much great EV technology, so many great EV vehicles, they are the sponsor of this episode of Decoding TV. A huge thanks to Nissan for sponsoring us. Nissan EVs that electrify. All right, let's move on. Uh, so let's talk about the the other plot lines. You know, there was one statement you made just now that I really wanted to, to bounce off of. Uh, I do think that like, 
Oh, I, I remember what I was going to say, uh, Roxana, mm-hmm. about about the the DeGrasso's, mm-hmm. which is that I think that one of the things that happened in White Lotus season one was that the status quo was upheld. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I feel like that's also true of this season largely as well. Yeah. Except as I made clear in last night's episode, like largely for now, we'll see what happens next season when we find out. Hopefully we find out more details uh, in passing. Um, but uh, largely the status quo is upheld. The grifters also won this season, you know, they mm-hmm. made many gains, but, um, but I think it's about, you know, the white Lotus in general is part, part, part of the themes are about how like the status quo is upheld. And so mm-hmm. the idea that the digresses wouldn't change that much, I, I think does fit in with that. So mm-hmm. anyway, uh, let's talk about our favorite storyline. Ethan Harper uh, and Cam and Daphne. Mm-hmm. So it's that morning. Ethan's still imagining Harper and Cam as having had sex. It's actually really graphic and terrible the way it's happening. Yeah. It's like right next to him. Right next to him. He yeah. no longer has the distance between himself yeah. and the table. It's like in the bed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a scene where Cam like still doesn't want to really talk to his children. Um does he sense that his children are not his, perhaps? At least uh, the older child who can talk, who's like calling for daddy and Cam has no interest. Well, he, I, I think it's, you know, I I personally, I know everyone feels that way, like what you just said. Mm-hmm. I still think it's ambiguous. He's like picking his teeth. And what, I don't know about you, Roxana, but when I'm cleaning my teeth, uh, it's a very purposeful activity for me. I don't. I don't want to be doing anything else. I don't want to be talking. Like my wife always wants to talk when I'm doing my like dental hygiene stuff, and I'm just like, I can't talk. I have stuff in my mouth. I don't want to do any of that. So Cam yeah. is just very deliberate about how he oh cleans his teeth. That's kind no. of what I'm saying. There's like a there's a, <laughs> there's a gap of time. There's like a pause of time mm-hmm. between when he's flossing and his expression of like these kids. It's not just the flossing, but I really like that you're like, no, Cam just, he really, clear, he really cares about the health of his Dental hygiene and gums, right? I do think it is completely psychotic to floss in the morning. Like, I don't know what the purpose of that is. Yeah, that's um, useless. Why, why would you, like, floss before you go to sleep at night or floss before yeah. you brush your teeth at night? Like, what, what's, what is going it's, on? Like, did he eat something? It's almost like he's using flossing as an excuse to not talk to his children. <laughs> Or they already like had breakfast. Or no, mm-hmm. they don't have breakfast yet, right? So yeah, no, this is psychotic for sure. Uh, so it, I think it's ambiguous whether or not Cam mm-hmm. knows that his children are not his. But yeah, in I don't any think case, it's definitive. Yeah. Yeah, I just yeah. think again, it's like a another layer. Agreed. There's tons of purpose stuff that is left purposefully ambiguous for the re- listener or reader or watcher to decipher for themselves. Um, at breakfast, Harper calls Cam an idiot. And that's when Ethan is like, something happened between you guys. Yeah. Um, so uh, anyway, there is a uh, long confrontation between Ethan and Harper where she finally tells Cam about all the stuff, all the sketchy stuff that happened between her and Cam, touching her leg at dinner. They got to the sweets. He tried to kiss her, but it was nothing. Do you? So well, they this did a- kiss, right? Not just uh, yes. he tried to kiss her. They did yes, kiss. Yes, he, he kissed her. And yes. that's what Ethan interrupted the other day. Um, yes. Then Ethan's like, you know what? That's not satisfying enough. Like, you you were gone for like 10 minutes. There couldn't have been just a kiss. Other right. stuff was going on. Right. Um, and then he gets really upset. 
I, I guess in, from my perspective, it is left ambiguous what actually happened. Like, Well, and what's interesting to me is that not only is he like, there were 10 minutes, you clearly did something else. He immediately jumps to thinking that she performed oral sex on Cam, mm-hmm. which is such a like weighted thing in terms of like, like sexual power dynamics mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. servicing another person and like the intimacy of that and all of this. So it's it's almost like he went to the thing that he would think would offend him the most, mm-hmm. potentially give Cam the most power, and somehow, like, demean Harper. It's, like, mm-hmm. all very messy and not good. But, yeah, he essentially is, like, rabid. He, like, refuses to believe what Harper is saying. Yeah. I, I interpreted that as... I think that's a great point. Uh, and I, I'm not disagreeing. I think I'm adding on that, like... Um, he doesn't think they had sex because he knows that that would be like probably something Harper wouldn't do. Uh, so he's trying to think of like, well, what are other things that they could have done that, that would also be extremely offensive to me? You know, but in all of his imaginings, he does imagine them having sex. Right, but but I think at yeah. that point Harper has already said like they didn't have sex. You know, so okay. I think he's he's trying to like take her at her word. But mm-hmm. like, wait, that's not quite explained. Like, if she's telling the truth, how could she be? What what is she omitting? Basically, you know, is kind of okay. how I interpreted okay. that. So, hmm. um, anyway, <laughs> Ethan then says, "Whatever, doesn't matter." Like he still tried to have sex with you, and I'm still really pissed about it. So then he right. goes, he storms into the other room. Uh, I love that Daphne's just like, what's going on? You know, she's completely oblivious to what's happening. Daphne truly the MVP of this season. She is absolutely incredible, which we'll discuss momentarily. But anyway, he goes down to the beach and they have a fight. Um, And Cam just acts like completely. He is a, he acts from freaking flossing his teeth first thing in the morning to uh, accosting Ethan and Harper at dinner later that night and giving a toast and showing up super nice looking with the, you know, cuts on his face. Cam acts psychotic the entire episode. Cam is amazing. It's amazing. It's 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 incredible. Right. It is truly unhinged behavior Mm -hmm. all all episodes. See, you know what's funny is that I I wouldn't call it unhinged at all. I'd call it like very in control of who Mm. he is. Like, I think his way of dealing with this situation is just pretending that it's completely unimpactful. They had a wonderful vacation. They didn't try to kill each other at the beach, right? I mean, again, it's just sort of, it's so clear that Daphne and Cam, like, get through their relationship and just treat the world as levels of compartmentalization. So you're going to have a great life if nothing actually bothers you. That's one interpretation. Uh, well, think about what uh, Daphne uh, uh, and Cam say that well, like they don't hold, watch the news. Like, hold on, hold on, hold on. No, another okay. interpretation. Another interpretation is that this is actually what gets them off. Like, yeah, I think this, right. I think it's this, both. This this whole situation of yeah. yeah, you're right. Not necessarily. I'm not necessarily disagreeing, but like this stuff where they go in and like fuck with other people's marriages. Like that's actually mm-hmm. like the excitement for them. You know. Mm-hmm. Um. So anyway. So, they have this uh, terrible fist it, fight, yeah. It is unhinged to a normal, regular person, you know, uh, an average bystander might consider it unhinged. But I agree with you. I don't think, like, Cam is out of control or anything like that. Yeah, like, no, no, no. He he knows everything he's doing, but I'm just saying... <laughs> it's literally inexplicable. To, yeah, from the yeah, outside, it's like an inexplicable outside behavior. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, 
I guess it's a it's a philosophical question, Roxana. Is you know to the unhinged? I'm, I'm sorry mm-hmm. for the unhinged people. Like, do they think they're unhinged? Then probably not. You know, no. So Cam thinks they're friends. When right before Ethan punches him in the face, right? Cam's like, "We're friends." Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, 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 that's great. Yeah. Uh, so Ethan ends the conversation by ultimately saying, "You know, Cam tried to have sex with Harper. They have a fist fight." Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Cam kind of has this laughter while he's floating in the water, which again, I, I just think is like very American psycho esque. Um, Love it. So Ethan runs into Daphne on the beach, who tells him that we can't ever really know someone. Uh, we talked about this last night. It's a great mm-hmm. quote. Uh, it's also kind of a a almost a reference to a Miller's Crossing line that you pointed out uh, mm-hmm. on on last night's podcast episode. Um, Megan Fahey is incredible this season. Lots of people are saying this scene was awesome, and I think mm-hmm. uh, she is so good in this scene. It's you're watching all these emotions play out across her face, but she's still in control. You know, she's maybe angry, she's maybe jealous. But at the end of the day, she's like, I'm making a plan. I'm sticking with it. Let's go, Ethan. You want to go? Let's go. Um, So then they go to this. uh, I don't remember what it's called, like the the little island villa or whatever. Yeah, I don't remember if it's the island that Quentin was telling Tanya about. I think it is. I think it is. But uh, yeah, they walk across this sandbar to this island. Right, and it's done in like ultra slow motion, very ponderously, very like, ooh, something going on here? What's going mm-hmm. on? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's an open question of whether something happens. Um, that night, we see Harper crying at the table with Ethan. They're sitting in silence. Cam and Daphne join Ethan and Harper for dinner, which Harper's shocked by. Again, psychotic so behavior for both of them. You know, yeah, chaotic. So chaotic. Great, great, great definition. Um, yeah. And Cam and Daphne lead a toast to the vacation, talk about how amazing it was and how they're going to go vacation again. I saw some chatter online last night that the most unrealistic thing about the White Lotus season two is that these two characters went to Yale and that that subject never came up before tonight. But they didn't talk about it before. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yes. Cam Um, and Ethan, at least Cam would have been like, remember back at Yale? Yeah. Um and yeah, Cam says Harper. It has been fast, fantastic to finally get to know you properly. What's he talking about? I love him. You know what? That's that's where I end this season. <laughs> that they're my favorites, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you love Cam. Um, continue to have disdain for Albie. Hmm, Roxana. It's true. I, it's well, true. I, I, here's what I think I'll say is that Cam is fully who he is. Uh, I guess, and like you see his true colors this season. And I think you could say that the same is not necessarily true of Albie, and and I will sympathize with that. Well, I just think that as a character, Cam is great because he just doesn't care about Mm -hmm. how he's perceived, right? So it's very interesting. Again, I sort of, I'm a little bit confused about, like, the Bernie Madoff stuff. Like, how much of these things that now seem like throwaway lines about people we were supposed to think of as, like, long-term story plots... But ultimately, I just am very amused by how terrible the two of them are. And I think their performances are so good that they're solid to watch. Um, We do see Cam pay back Lucia this episode. So it kind of like I had a theory, like maybe Cam has no money. And I think that was a prevailing theory for a lot of people. That's why he invited them on the trip. 
Right. I think right. it was left ambiguous until the very end, which is another mm-hmm. thing. I was just like, that's a very subtle one. There, there was no like mm-hmm. dis- dialogue about, does Cam have no money? Like, mm-hmm. it was kind of one you could just think about. And uh, I like that they kind of resolved it by the end. It's, mm-hmm. It does seem to show that Cam actually does have money and so on. That, right. That's that's not an area the show wanted to explore. Um, back in the room, Harper asks Ethan, what's going to happen to us? Uh, and then they start having sex. Mm-hmm. And it's shot very exuberantly and uh, and beautifully. And um, Ethan uh, Ethan kind of knocks over the statue from the first episode. Yeah, the, they the break Moore's the head Moore's head, which had been used for B-roll over and over. And do you remember what the uh, story around that was, by the way? Yeah, I mean, the Moore's head story is that there was like a Moorish man who fell in love, I think, with a Sicilian woman. And she learned that he was, like, married. So she beheaded him for having turned her, like, into the other woman and having her, uh, like, you know, do sinful things when he was lying to her. And then she, like, uses his head as, like, a planter. So it's very much, again, it's about, like, infidelity, revenge, like, the specter of masculinity, all that stuff. Well, well, it's a it's a story about somebody rejecting or like infidelity being framed in a in an evil way like mm-hmm. this guy wasn't loyal to his wife and therefore got his head cut off right am i right, right. about that infidelity yeah. is something i think that like is undesirable the, right and like harms the woman in particular because of like the social effects of a woman being involved in infidelity versus a man but they shatter that Moore's head, yep. and it turns out for Harp, uh, for uh, Harper and Ethan's relationship, maybe infidelity might be just what the doctor ordered, Roxana. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like a, did Cam and Daphne make a version of themselves, essentially, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. through I Ethan mean, and Harper. So uh, the next day at the airport, Cam and Daphne are cuddling, and... Um, Daphne caressing his bruised eye and they kiss and uh, Harper and Ethan are laughing together and they're content. And, uh, and, and so I think like that's that's the story. But let's mm-hmm. and I, I saw some people interpreting it as like Cam was not as happy, but I don't I don't know if I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's talk a little bit about what actually this plot line is trying to say. I mean, mm-hmm. the, do you have any thoughts on whether Ethan and Daphne did something or slept together? I mean, I think. The implication is that whatever happened between Ethan and Ethan and Daphne, mm-hmm. it whether it was sexual, it probably was some kind of sexual, like we don't know, mm-hmm. uh, but that it it was enough for Ethan to regain his confidence back and be attracted to his wife again. I I think you are right. The term you have kept using this season is gender essentialism, mm-hmm. and I, I feel like that's really accurate because. I just don't know that we have enough about Ethan from the dialogue mm-hmm. that makes me buy this whole Ethan subplot. And I, I know people, I, I brought this up. I brought this up on the episode and people like wrote in, they're like, you didn't remember the thing. And it's like, yeah, I brought up the conversation they had in the vineyard. Right. Uh, Ethan I had remember the, the mimetic with, desire thing. The right. mimetic desire and Cam like wanting to date girls that Ethan date. Like I, I, I yeah. specifically mentioned that when we talked about the Ethan thing. Um, but in order for me to believe this whole thing would happen with Ethan, you need to believe he's like very jealous and controlling person or that he has a big chip on his shoulder about Cam. 
and that he has not changed since college. That's my problem, right? It's like, oh, I guess the stuff that happened in college is still a, a, a common dynamic now, right? right? And it's like, do we have enough information to know that it hasn't changed since college? Not until he suspected that Harper was cheating. Um, and that's ultimately my problem with the Ethan storyline. It's like, we don't get enough time with Ethan to really make this all make sense. Other mm-hmm. than this one conversation they had in the vineyard about like, how they used to be in college and maybe, and maybe you're just supposed to take a lot from the casting of Ethan and cam as like, right. Oh, here's like conventional alpha male. And here's like, I think he's part Asian, Ethan, if I'm not mistaken. And it's like, yes. Oh, and therefore like a wilting flower compared to, compared to cam. And it's like, you know, I, I just don't, I don't like, mm-hmm. I don't like that. We, we need to lean on like, I guess our, uh, my supposition, my, my, position is that the show makes us lean too much on our unspoken biases about these characters Mm -hmm. to really have this plot line with Ethan's jealousy be fully satisfying. Like, oh, Mm -hmm. oh, him now having something over Harper and Cam, that's the thing he needed to unlock his desire for his wife. Like, I just don't think the show has given us enough for that. That's my, Mm -hmm. like, he, like Ethan has such confidence issues. Um, and that's why he wasn't attracted to his wife or that's why he couldn't have sex with his wife. Um, it's pretty unsatisfying to me as a story. Uh, but I did think, you, you know, Daphne and Megan Faye's performance and like her arc is like fully realized and awesome. The idea that like, she's like, okay, I'm going to do whatever it takes to preserve my life. Like that's amazing. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the Ethan stuff uh, didn't, didn't love how it all played out. What do you think? I mean, that's basically exactly where I am. And I think we talked about this last episode, that last episode sort of felt like there should have been another episode between five and six. And I sort of wonder now, maybe if there should have been another episode between six and seven, I'm not saying like the season should have been nine episodes, but it feels like there was something more needed for Ethan and Harper in particular to feel more like specific people and not just like the worst inclinations of a straight man right Mm -hmm, and sort of like the worst inclinations of a straight woman there's something just about the dynamic of like the cheating and the lying and the i don't know assumptions and all of that stuff that just felt very broad and not necessarily unique to the characters as they were depicted to us and maybe that's why like I have enjoyed Cam and Daphne more because Daphne has had a very interesting arc, right? I mean, like with Daphne, we've got so many different um, explanations about how she lives her life and what sort of like personal bargains she's made with herself to stay married to this wealthy man who she knows cheats on her. There's like a lot of backstory for Daphne's actions. And even with Cam, I think he is a recognizable like asshole bro type right to like uh call upon bro code and to just very casually use these sex workers and like whatever but like you said he feels like fully realized in a certain way i understand that ethan and harper are characters who come to us um at the cusp of transformation and they clearly are unsure of their marriage and they don't know where they stand and all of that i just don't really buy where they end up and i just yeah i just needed like a little bit 
more, I think, about how each of them turned to their actions. Like, I still don't really buy that Harper would have even gone up to the room with Cam. You know, mm-hmm. like, I still yeah. don't really accept that. It, it, it really, I think the show really makes you lean on, like, the actors and yeah. their chemistry with each other to, to mm-hmm. like, make. But it's not, I don't think it's there in the script, in my opinion. I just like, think that you're, this you're supposed series... to look. You're supposed to look, in my opinion, you're supposed to look at Cam and look at Ethan. And then you, the viewer, are constructing the story. And I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't like I think that's kind of like lazy in my opinion. I'm well, not just, against good casting, but like I just think we you, you don't want to make all these uh assumptions about who these you don't like we as people should try to fight against our unspoken assumptions, not play sure. into them. And that's what the show does. And and by the way, you know, this is probably a good time to bring up the Valentina and Mia storyline. Mm-hmm. Well, can I just say one thing before yeah, we get ahead, there? Please, I mean, I think we have also talked about this before is that it feels like a formatting issue for this season because the entire point of the season, right, was to inject ambiguity and to force us as viewers to decide what happened, what didn't happen. Things were off screen. Things were implied. And there's part of me that can accept that in terms of did Ethan and Daphne really sleep together. Did Cam and Harper do more than kiss? Like I sort of buy that uh, inscrutability for certain plot details, but I don't like it for character development. And I think that's where we're like falling down. Like, I don't think either of us has a problem with not knowing the exact details of their sexual encounters. I think our problem is how these characters reacted to that narrative ambiguity, right? Like it feels like there should have been more yeah. depth to the characters themselves. Yeah. I uh I would completely agree there. Yeah. So um and so then okay. that takes us to Valentina and Mia. Yeah. Uh and I think that if I'm trying to give the show the benefit of the doubt, mm-hmm. uh that bit of the doubt is then taken away when I look at the Valentina and Mia storyline, because mm-hmm. basically like what happens with Valentina and Mia is, uh, you know, there's a very embarrassing situation where Valentina can't find her underwear the next morning and like housekeeping mm-hmm. interrupts her. It's like an employee of hers that interrupts her. Mm-hmm. And uh, Valentina basically becomes like a much nicer person. Right. All, yes. all she, all <laughs> she needed, all she needed was to get laid. Roxana. Right. And like, that's a very, male gazy like retrograde you, how many times have we heard like oh like so and so is like a frigid bitch and like mm-hmm. she just needs to get laid and it's like mm-hmm. it's kind of like plays into that stereotype which is just like yes she's uh gay or at least bi in the show but like it's still a fairly simplistic um and arguably offensive characterization of this person i, I don't know what do you what do you think I hadn't thought about it like that. I mean, I can definitely see the validity of that, that Mm -hmm. suddenly now that she has had like one sexual encounter, I will say that I think we're supposed to think of Valentina as like a little bit more sympathetic than that. Right. Because like we saw how isolated she is, like we saw how lonely she is. I think it's less um, about, uh, she is somebody who is like used to sexual activity mm-hmm, and so now mm-hmm. she has to have it like i think we're supposed to see it a little bit differently from like ethan's reliance on porn but i do agree with you that on a certain level valentina and albie have the same storyline 
which is that they both become like more confident and sure of themselves and comfortable in their own skin mm-hmm. after having these sexual encounters with these two young Machiavellian sex workers. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, there's something about that that I'm like, again, like, I don't know. It just felt sort of hollow to me. But I think that's where we end it, right? Like, I don't actually, I don't actually remember, and forgive me for this, but I don't remember if Valentina knows that Mia is a sex worker. I mean, I know they go into like the bargain of, uh, if I sleep with you, then you should give me this job. But I don't remember if Valentina knows, like, the degree to which, like, yes, she's seen Mia and Lucia together. She knows that, like, she's the guest of Dom. Mm-hmm. I just don't know how much we're supposed to take this as, like, Mia is now stringing along Valentina, or if Val- Valentina is, like, eyes wide open going into a further partnership with her i don't know so, i think something... the, so there's a scene where mia says hey you know you should get an actual lesbian to, right. to be you know to be with you mm-hmm. and i think valentina is stunned in a variety of different ways like right i think like part of her was like oh i thought like we actually experienced some real emotional connection last night maybe. right or right. i thought you actually were a lesbian like you convinced mm-hmm. me you know like I, that's what i my interpretation okay. of valentina's shock was yeah um uh but also i think valentina kind of accepted she wasn't like angry she didn't fly into a rage when she made these realizations she kind of accepted that um it's okay like it's okay because Mia is still going to be with me. She says like, "Hey, we'll still hang out tonight," and she's like, "Oh, that's still I'm still going to get kind of what I want slash need regardless." Right. right. Um, so and that's her prerogative too, right? I mean, like if that's what Valentina wants, and like that's what Valentina wants, which was the argument that we had made with like, or that I had made with like the Albi Lucia scenario, which is like Dom should not tell Albi if Albi just wants to be with Lucia anyway. So I'm not necessarily trying to. Um, like be contradictory i was just trying to figure out the details of like what is this dynamic now like where do we leave it yeah um and i would say my my guess is that valentina is basically more aware of what her own needs are Mm -hmm. right and that is a better place for her okay Um, more aware of her own needs and willing to like express them to the world in some fashion that's kind of my perspective so she became Um, a better person mm -hmm, to go mm -hmm. back to your point of like all she needed to do was get laid yes yes yeah Uh, i can i can sort of see a little bit of like you brought up a great point about like yeah she she is a more tragic figure than than yeah than that you know like um but it doesn't seem like that that plot line doesn't seem particularly nuanced to me personally Um, no I haven't loved it, and I don't end up loving it. No, she does fire Giuseppe, which is pretty brutal. Um, yes. But you know, uh, maybe Giuseppe shouldn't have been trying to have sex with someone at the hotel. Uh, you know, d- you know, um, in the hotel uh, in some. I guess, uh, but that's literally what Valentina does, right? Like literally <laughs> in the hotel. Like I almost feel like I. I don't but know it's if bad this is if a guy does it. Okay, right. I almost feel like Mike White saying this is like hashtag feminism. Right. Mm -hmm, Like mm -hmm. we in one reading, we would see this as like a triumph for Valentina because like she's getting what she wants. She's like putting this man in his place, blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, she is doing exactly what he did. Yeah. 
She just happens to be a woman who is doing it. So. It's messy. You know, feminism can be messy, I think is what the show is trying to say. No, I think um, the show is just saying that humanity is messy. <laughs> I know. I'm being I'm being yeah. facetious. Because yes. you're right. Like, ultimately, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't really feel like a super coherent worldview about, you no. know, uh, abusing workers or, or, uh, or using your power to get hotel resources or whatever. Right. Um, anyway. Uh, so, so yeah, d- didn't love the subtlety or lack thereof in that plot line. And I feel mm-hmm. like that kind of is there to le- the lack of subtlety is there to a lesser extent in the Ethan Harper storyline. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and I also wanted to point this out about the Ethan Harper, Daphne camp storyline, um, Roxana, which is you were saying how like Daphne has a great arc this, uh, this mm-hmm. season. I don't think she has a great arc. I think we, as the audience have a great arc with her. Um, okay. like we discover lots of things about her that make her more interesting. Mm-hmm. And we go through a journey, but like I don't think Daphne changes really at all. Like she came into this season, no, I think that's the season, fair. yeah. Like one, and and the people, arguably the people that are supposed to have the arc, which is Ethan and Harper. Like Cam, I don't think changes at all this season. No, but the people that are supposed to have an arc, Ethan and Harper, um, their arc was of mixed success storytelling wise, according to us. And yes, and I think their arc basically pushes them. Yeah. yeah. Basically pushes them into a place that neither of us totally was convinced by. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, final plotline. Tanya. Wait, should Quint- we should we add that M- Mia and Lucia just like walk off into the sunset, and that <laughs> felt <laughs> sort of like okay. <laughs> yeah, and Shrug. She, uh, it's clear that Lucia and Alessio are. Um, they were in like on friends. it together. They're in on it together. Everything's great, yeah. and. Uh, they got one, they got one over on the rich people. Uh, you know, my the way I'm reading the season, Roxana, is um, capitalism that produces these millionaires and billionaires. Um, it can't be stopped, uh, and it's incredibly unjust, and often results in uh, people from lower ca- classes being oppressed and or killed. The best you can do is hope to extract some of that sweet sweet wealth for yourself. That's kind of how I read that closing scene. It's like, these people are victorious, not because they upended the roots of capitalism, but because they were at least able to get their bag. Uh, that's that's my interpretation. You know? Any thoughts? I, I guess. I, but, I, but I feel like if you watched this season of this show, and the White Lotus keeps saying it's an anthology, right? So if you watched this season on its own, I don't actually know if that messaging comes through. I think it comes through for us in the context of season one, where we saw like rich people get away with whatever they want. And there is more of like a specific classist discussion. It feels like we're putting that on season two when I don't think the writing around those concepts was as clear. Mm-hmm. And I also think that you could read a se- this second season as like, wow, Americans shouldn't travel internationally because like, <laughs> foreigners are really bad right mm-hmm. like everybody who is a villain in this season is a non-american <laughs> well other than greg other than greg but other than greg but like greg doesn't do the dirty work right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so like i i don't know i feel like we're sort of putting that anti-capitalist read well, on this but, season but roxana i do think it's reasonable to like for a show to build on itself like like, but was, then it shouldn't call itself. Mm, then it mm. was the wire in season two, like not like the wire in season one was about the drug war, and the wire in season two was about like the working class, and the wire in season three was about 
right. teacher. Or, uh, but that's you know, about like the interconnectivity of a city. There are numerous shared characters. It's not just one shared character. It is about like a specific ecosystem in which myriad parts are failing, but they are connected by location and mm-hmm. by like a failed sense of the American promise to its citizens. I think we're just saying that like rich people are the are the guiding theme of the White Lotus. And I just think that's too broad, mm-hmm. especially if your ideology is that the status quo does not change, which is that both what both seasons have done, right? The status quo does not change. First of all, I'm just so impressed that you can like articulate such a beautiful summation of the wireless themes just off the cuff. Nicely it's done. my favorite show. So, yeah, <laughs> um, and that's a fair. That's a fair point, Roxanne. You know, I, yeah, I don't. But I think you're I don't right agree. too. I think, like, I think the White Lotus as the as a locus of rich people activity is sufficient for mm-hmm. me to like mm-hmm. uh, contain. You mm-hmm. know, uh, the the scope of the show. But I understand if it's not for you. You know, yeah. Um, but but for me, it's reasonable for like Mike White to say, okay, I made the points around capitalism. The right. first time, like that, that is now like the setting under which this second story takes place. You know, mm-hmm. like that to me is a very reasonable thing for a storyteller to do. Mm-hmm. But I understand if it wasn't fully satisfying for you. It's yeah. just like for me, it works. But um, yeah, uh, it, bar- it barely works. You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's Have because you, yeah. Go ahead. Did you hear about what the third season is going to be about? Yeah. Uh, why don't we talk about that at the end? Let's, yeah, let's save okay. that for the or maybe for the bonus episode. Um, yeah, yeah. But let's end on the the most most. <laughs> climactic yeah. storyline so that morning tanya wakes up uh, again wearing her floral mini dress that is the same one that the apollonia dummy was wearing um mm-hmm. or at least similar highly similar um side note by the way you, you know just an extremely random side note you, you mm-hmm. remember how like <laughs> i wanted to bring this this is a really random note but like mm-hmm. you know how ethan has like these visions of his wife having sex with cam mm-hmm. um i was like Wow, it's so weird that the show is willing to show us these like visions like happening in like diegetically like in the location, but it needed to construct this whole other reason to show us the Godfather footage. Mm, mm-hmm, Remember that? It's mm-hmm. like, oh, these people are watching the Godfather on, at the gift shop. It's like, yes, but you were willing to show us this dream sequence. Like, what if you just cut to B roll of the Godfather? Couldn't we have just been like Bert was imagining it anyway? Really random. It's just well, weird and, what shows will think is important and what's not. Anyway. And Bert is watching The Godfather at the hotel, which is what yeah. inspires him to like do the whole tourist. So he's thing. thinking, yeah, he's thinking can... about it. And then we're anyway. Okay, wait, yeah. Wait, wait. Um, yeah. I respect it. I respect that they did the Godfather gift shop thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, Porsche's still missing. We cut to Porsche and Jack. It's clear that he took her phone and is lying about it. There's this really mm-hmm. tense moment where he's like, "Don't worry about it," and he puts his arm over her like even more. Porsche acts like a fucking moron this entire episode in my opinion like i don't necessarily believe in stranger danger but like mm-hmm. the he's throwing off red flags left and right like she, if she died she deserved to die basically that's kind of a, i use, i don't like to victim blame here but like there's so many opportunities where she should have gotten the fuck out of there where she didn't yeah. I'm like, oh, is is he like literally? I was like, is Jack literally going to choke her to death right now on the bed? That's right. what I thought. Right. And so I'm like, oh, you survived that Porsche? Get the fuck out of there! Like that's kind of my reaction. The thing that was infuriating to me, I completely yeah. agree. I, I agree with you on both counts. On the one hand, I was like, God damn it, Porsche. On the other hand, I myself have been in a scenario which was 
uh, a dangerous scenario for me. And I thought that I would react in one way. And then in the moment when it was happening, I completely abandoned all the ways that I thought I would react. And I did not react in a way that necessarily was like, I don't, I don't want to say smart, but I didn't react in the way that I would have thought I would in like a situation where like danger and violence was like threatened against me. So I totally understand sort of like not knowing how to immediately react in that kind of scenario. But it's now been like a day and a half <laughs> when Jack goes to, in his own words, take a shit. She should have just taken the phone just, and just run, run, away. Away. Run, run away. Run away. Run away. Run um, away. Like, yeah, I, I would agree. I would agree with you. Like in the moment, like when, you know, if Cam and Daphne accost you at dinner, you might not want to like, you know, end that dinner immediately. Like, I, right. get it, I get it. Social pressure. I get it. But like it's a series of red flags. And then and then the scene that just was completely unforgivable to me is she gets in the car and is like, so am I being kidnapped? It's like, I know. I, why yeah, would you I have agree. that conversation in the car? Like I agree. have it in a public place. It right. just is. And I don't, again, I don't think if Portia, like, yes, Portia is like aimless and sort of like ditzy and sort of like loosey goosey, but there was like a staggering disregard for her own survival in that yeah. scene where I was like, this man has done everything he could to threaten you. <laughs> like, just run away. Yeah, yeah I did not. He's like, yeah. uh, he's like, well, you're, you can't afford a cab to the hotel. You know, it's like. Uh, Why are I have still a feeling. With him? I have yeah. a feeling she can find the money. Yes. You know, like I also feel- <laughs> there are like a lot of other tourists in this area, right? We've seen other English speaking tourists take Jack's phone and run and find someone <laughs> and be like, "I'm in danger. Can yeah. you please help me?" Like, yeah. I, don't I, know. I, I think, maybe that's you know, expecting you- too much from strangers, but I just I didn't understand like staying within like visual sight of him. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think every individual decision, like viewed independently, I could understand. Like, oh, mm-hmm. you're in bed with Jack, and he's like, "Yeah, your phone." And, and then first of all, she's like voicing over her thoughts. What the fuck are you doing, lady? Like, if you think like, "Hey, it's really suspicious. I don't have my phone." Like, don't say that out loud. You don't want him to know that you think that. None of her behavior makes any sense to me in this. Episode. No, um, but and then so, the other thing but, too but, that but, I yeah, go, go ahead. Well, just the last thing I will say again is like. I don't know how much we're supposed to perceive Jack as a threat either, because I do think that he was supposed to kill her. Yeah. But then there's part of me that's like, then why are you just like actually spending the day with her? <laughs> I, I actually, I actually don't like think my interpretation is her? not that he was going to kill her. Like, okay. I actually think it was a loose end that. The, I, I, so yeah, the question is, Roxana, which way was this plot line dumb? Was it mm-hmm. that he was supposed to kill her and he didn't, mm-hmm. or that he wasn't supposed to kill her and then Quentin? Like purposely left a loose end, right? Uh, you know, like I, I don't know what was going on there, but and how um, dumb did they think she was? Because she does figure it out pretty easily. <laughs> yeah, not great. It's a, it's a, it's very silly. And so anyway, I was gonna say like every individual decision she makes, like viewed in out of context, like kind of I could justify, but the totality of the decisions, like you know, not realizing something's wrong, not getting out of when he's taking his morning piss, not like running away mm-hmm. in the hotel. At the place when he's taking a shit, not running away, basically not taking advantage of his bodily functions more is mm-hmm. kind of what I'm saying, to run away. When he has, you know, like getting in the car with him, like all this, don't go to season, a secondary location with this character. Like, what are you doing? And in season one, a lot of people like ragged on Paul, right? It was Paula who like helped plan the 
jewelry scheme. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people ragged on like, did she really think $75,000 would be enough to hire a lawyer to sue the resort to get Kai's like family land back? And there's a lot of criticism of that. But I'm like, maybe Mike White just doesn't like think that like he just thinks young women are dumb i mean yeah maybe we're just (laughs) stupid like i don't know yeah but uh, i say that somewhat facetiously but i i do think that yeah Porsche makes a lot of choices that don't make sense i i would agree that um that is unfair to like completely pin on mike white uh, yes but but although he did write and direct every episode so isn't that unfair (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, you know, to be fair, like he's also like I thought the the character of uh of Daphne was really excellent, you know, like it's not but like Daphne's he's... like 10 years older, right? Yeah. Whereas it's like Lucia, Mia, Portia, teenage Paula. and 20-year-old women basically. Yeah. yeah he's yeah, like, "Ugh, yeah. gross." Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Okay, okay, so that's like that's the Portia stuff. So we get into the <laughs> Tanya stuff. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so uh so yeah, and but we should point out that Quentin is acting super sketchy like the whole time. Whole time. If there, there's a lot, I've seen a lot of people question online. Like, this seems like an extremely elaborate scheme for Greg oh to murder Tanya. So elaborate. Really, I, I actually think it's completely fine because what what do they expect? Like, well, it, I mean, elaborate in terms of time. It seems like there's like a lot of dead time. Where mm-hmm. we don't like, are they literally just like sitting around at the dinner table, staring at each other in silence? You know, like we've talked about how like the structure of this season is that each day is an episode. Yeah, a lot of times we start in the morning and then skip to the evening without a sense of like what happened during the day. So I only mean it's elaborate in that I don't understand how they're like entertaining her this whole time. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it would make sense for like Greg to. Uh, want to have these people do a murder on her right quickly uh, but there, there, there's so many things about it that are really really weird to me mm-hmm. um like hey if they're gonna do a murder on her maybe quentin shouldn't have a photo of greg uh in his room like that feels like a pretty big oversight um when she discovers so i actually took my google translate app up to the speaker Mm-hmm. Uh, on the TV and uh, tra- tried tried to have it translate what Niccolo says to Quentin on the boat. Okay. Um, and uh, the translation that I got was something along the lines of, "I think it's time for me to go. Let me sort out my things." That's what I. That's what the Google okay. Translate said to me. I don't know okay. if it's accurate, and it might have picked up background. Who, who knows? But and he gets up and he goes and he has a bag, and then Tanya gets the bag, and it has. The most comedically obvious kidnapping things ever. It's um, like when you watch a Dateline episode and they're like, yes, a wife went missing and the husband the day before went to Walmart and paid with a credit card to purchase a shovel and rope and duct tape and a gun. It's like literally that level. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, I hope he didn't buy all those things in one store is all I'm yeah, going to say right? about that. Yeah. Um, but what was the plan, Roxanne? Like, I'm pretty sure prenups also have clauses that if you're murdered, it doesn't count. Like, I agree. Greg I, and doesn't this get is, all the money. This so. is, again, where this sort of fell down for me. Yeah. Is, like, everything about this death was suspicious. 
<laughs> like if they okay if they were actually going to use Nicolo's tools of like right. rope and duct tape and a gun are they going to kidnap incredibly her? Like, suspicious yeah because right. they, so they need they need you to find the body for right. like you can't just vanish her right. um so you need to have her have a body and if you're like tying her up those things show up in an autopsy you know like right. it does Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, no. I, I, I completely agree with you. So it's like, again, that portion of it did not make a ton of sense to me. Even an accidental death. Like, the prenup, I think, is going to suppose, like, a life insurance investigation, right? Because they're going to try to figure out. Like, insurance companies don't want to pay out. <laughs> like, they don't want to yeah. do that. Yeah. So, yeah. So a lot of this was just sort of like, ah, is this really how this would have gone down unless we're supposed to think that they're morons that they're absolute morons and then i feel like the tension of the episode sort of doesn't align with the fact mm-hmm. that they're idiots you mm-hmm. know like i yeah i go back and forth on this a little yeah, bit yeah because because it's so foreboding the 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 score which i think is excellent you know mm-hmm. it's like has this kind of ambient thrum and rhythmic mm-hmm. thrum and um, Quentin saying all these like Quentin acting sketchy as Hollander's and, performance is really yes. good. His line deliveries are all very like double edged. Sinister. At one point, yeah, yeah. Yeah. At one point he's like, you want to enjoy the Ionian Sea while you one can. Last time, you know. Yeah. Right. And, <laughs> yeah. And so there are all these lines and I'm like, okay, this is good. But then it's just sort of like, so what, what did you guys actually think was going to happen here. Yeah. And, and are that's we why, supposed to think this was a good plan, basically? Right. And right. that's why I do I do completely understand the people who thought the prenup cheating thing was a little bit more digestible. That, because, that was a well-executed plan, yeah, in my opinion. Because that, that part was like, good. you get her to do drugs, <laughs> yeah. you get her to cheat, you get it on tape. Yes. Like, I did Excellent. say earlier that clearly Tanya would have, like, lawyered up and contested that yeah but that makes more sense to me than like we're gonna murder her and somehow greg is gonna get all of her money like i don't i don't know how well, yeah so he worked. has like zip ties and he has like rope and all this fucking yeah. stuff the, now the gun that like if it had just been a gun that would have been much more believable to me like uh but then so then there's a scene where tanya basically kills everyone on the boat she shoots I mean, her way out i, I do want to say this is a really good gener- like Megan Fahey and Jennifer Coolidge were MVPs of this episode. I, yes. R- regardless of how ridiculous the plot was, Jennifer Coolidge is wonderful. Like We didn't talk about it, but her Coolidge and uh, like Tanya and Portia's phone conversation is so mm. well done mm-hmm. because it's all of these Coolidge facial reactions where she's putting together what's happening, right? You get like the Portia reaction to Tanya being like, oh yeah, he was fucking his uncle. So you get Portia's like shock at that. And that's a great Coolidge line delivery. Mm-hmm. And then you get Coolidge's like running through the reactions of like, I do have a bad feeling about this. Like what is Quentin up to? And that was a picture of Greg, right? It's like she cycles <laughs> yeah. through all of that stuff really well. And then yes, she like shoots her way out of this bedroom that she's barricaded herself into. She shoots Niccolo which we see first well there's also this scene where she like loses her phone and then she tries to talk with the older gentleman and she's like these gays are trying to kill me which is like an amazing right <laughs> line and the captain's and like we're all gay yeah <laughs> the and captain it, is not helpful it's a great it's a great sequence so coolidge is like this is like one of my favorite episodes of her this season yeah um and uh and yeah then she kills she shoots everyone and the way it's filmed is really interesting it's filmed like you're kind of viewing 
not from her POV, not even a wide shot, but you're like looking at her while she's shooting everyone. Mm -hmm. And like we're facing her. We're very close to her. So like we see her lift the gun and shoot it. But I'm imagining that like, you know, that was shot with like white moving backward through a hallway or on a dolly or something. Um, So yeah. So then finally, when we see the reveal, she's like killed Didier. She has shot Quentin. Hugo is hiding. And then she asks Quentin, like, was Greg having an affair? Which Quentin dies before answering. Mm -hmm. So again, leaves Tanya with this, again, the ambiguity, the confusion, the infidelity question. And then do you want to talk about what ends up happening to Tanya? Well, she tries to get on a smaller boat to get to shore. Nicola's boat. Nicola's boat. She accidentally slips. I actually watched this scene like five times. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I was trying to see, like, did she hit her head or something mm-hmm. on the way down? Um, but I don't think she hit anything. I think it was, um, I think it was added, like a sound effect was added to in- oh, imply that she hit hit something. Um, right, because there was, was like, like a th- thunk. There was a thunk, and I was like, did it actually show her head making contact with anything? I don't think it did. I think it's like a m- movie magic kind of thing. Where anyway, whatever the case, she slips off, she hits herself, and she dies. Mm-hmm. I read, you know, I read about Mike White saying she wanted Tanya to have an operatic. Uh, ending right there's um, like italian opera that's playing during her like a drowning sinking into the water sequence yeah not she he said quote not that i really wanted to kill tanya because i love her as a character and obviously love jennifer but we're going to italy she's such a diva a larger than life female archetype it felt like maybe we could devise our own operatic conclusion to her life and story end quote. Mm-hmm. so uh and we discussed last night about like whether we found this to be satisfying mm-hmm. uh you know and and, and like that she would serve, and, and there is, you know, it's all very Con Brothers esque. That she would survive this entire cockamamie attempt to murder her, and then be felled by like her own clumsiness at the end, right? Slip and um, fall off of a boat. Yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, yeah, it, I don't know that it's like the ending I would have wanted for Tanya, but I think it's like a very valid, fair ending for the character. Like it's, mm-hmm. it fits in with like some things that we know about that character. Mm-hmm. Um, but did you ever watch that movie True Lies? Oh my god! Like many, many years ago. Uh, obviously, parts of it have not aged well. Uh-huh. Um, but there is a scene where Jamie Lee Curtis drops an Uzi, uh, and it bounces down the stairs. And like while it's bouncing downstairs, it like goes off and shoots like ten terrorists. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of how I felt about this scene with Jennifer Coolidge killing, like expertly killing all these people on the boat. Um, while shakingly nervous uh it it felt a little bit it it beggared belief a little bit but you know whatever but it also Um, feels like tanya would be the person who would like go to a shooting range she feels like that kind of person mm -hmm. who would have like experience with a gun um but i mean i ultimately i i liked her ending i thought it made (laughs) sense to have her Mm -hmm. drown uh and we've talked about this a little bit before given that season one and the way that season one used water was as like in the way that it's often been used in literature and art, which is like rebirth and like rejuvenation and restoration, like Tanya throwing her mother's ashes into the water was like a cleansing healing moment for her. Uh, Hilariously played by Coolidge, like running through the surf, but still right. Like a moment where we were supposed to actually sort of have sympathy for Tanya and her growth And then here, the whole season has really played up the menace of, like, the ocean and the waves and sort of this place has, like, a natural aggression 
to its landscape. And so having her drown, I thought, was a nice way to like link mm-hmm. all of that stuff back together. Did you see the uh the the first of all roxana has written a piece about this at vulture i have not had a chance to read it yes. yet but yes. it's called the white lotus's watery end we'll link to it in the show notes um uh, did you see there was a reverse shot of water in no. the episode oh yes well there is like a there's a it, moment in this episode where it's yeah. clearly like waves that were shot and then like rewound rewound yeah yeah i didn't know if you had any take on on what that was but um, um well, this might be, again, this is probably too much of a reach. But what I mentioned in my essay is that all of the waves and stuff reminded me of how David Lynch uses wind and like trees in Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. It felt like he was always mm-hmm. using the B-roll of like the woods to sort of, again, nod to like, there are sinister things happening in nature that don't care about us as people. Uh, and the thing that Lynch did, which I'm sure you remember, is that he would like record people giving their lines backward and then rewind them so that they were being said correctly but like the cadence and the rhythm was weird so i think just doing things in reverse is like a recognizable way of messing with like our sense of time and reality and adding Mm -hmm. sort of a surreal edge to things that we think we know yeah yeah um okay we got to wrap up, even though it feels like we haven't finished talking about everything yet. But I, I do want to say, please, um, uh, if you want to hear our bonus episode where we kind of react to some of the people's reactions to this season, uh, subscribe at decodingtv.com. Um, and uh, I want to just say a big thank you to Roxana again for uh, joining us this season. You know, let's let's do a quick rundown before we go of like the individual plot lines like i thought the cam and daphne stuff was awesome this season like mm-hmm. just really great to learn about those characters and how weird and in my opinion unhinged they are mm-hmm. the ethan harper storyline had some decent elements about it mm-hmm. um but kind of veered towards this really you know thinly written s- stuff towards the end about this jealousy and as you said as you as you said gender essentialism i mm-hmm. thought that the degrasso stuff was pretty solid throughout in my opinion yeah. Um, and the Tanya and Quentin stuff, you know, the, the, the Quentin plan is silly, but Tanya's performance, uh, and also kind of like her fate feels like pretty, pretty decent as well. Yes. And then Valentina, Lucia and Mia, not great. Not That's great. kind of how I feel. So the whole spectrum of reactions mm-hmm. to like this season. Um, mm-hmm. but overall I had a great time talking about the show with you, Roxana, and Same. I want to give a big thank you to you again. Thank you for having me on. Thank you to everybody's emails. And uh, it was fun. It was a good time. It was fun. So, yeah, there will be one more bonus episode for Decoding TV members. And tune in. Be sure to hear our announcement podcast about The Last of Us, uh, which will be coming in the next couple of weeks. Uh, but thanks so much for listening to this season of Decoding TV. Keep it tuned in to podcast.decodingtv.com uh, for more coverage of the greatest TV shows that are on right now. Uh, and until next time, we will see you later. Goodbye. Bye.